K Takwaye now presents War Storm Part 2 from the Red Queen series by Victoria Aveyard. Welcome back to MNK Talk YA. I'm Marissa Snyder. And I'm Katie Bradford. And this is our Young Adult Fiction Podcast. And this week we finished the fourth book in the Red Queen series, War Storm, which means we are completely done with the entire Red Queen series. Which we've been reading for a really long time. Because we've been like reading it for months. forever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like it's been forever. And they're not short books. They are like almost 700 pages. Yeah, they were getting longer and longer. Oh. And I, I actually really enjoyed it. And besides, I think we said it got a little bit slow in the second book, but I felt like the pacing and the action made sense. It was just kind of hard from a research and because of the pace that we do for all the podcasting, I feel like it took a long time. Yeah, I agree. And I also, um, like, I was trying to think what it was about this series that made it so hard for me to read. And I think one of the things was, like you said, like the pacing was okay and, and there was definitely some action. But I felt like almost every scene was happening in order to get to one particular point or one particular goal. And it made me, it was hard for me to like enjoy a scene because I felt like everything was just pointing towards this end goal that we had to get to. And I don't know, I just, I find, I found it hard to like enjoy the moments because I was always looking forward to what was going to happen next. Mm-hmm. I feel like there was a lot of politicking and I mean like kind of to your point there wasn't ever or there were very few times where we were just like ah (laughs) let's have a a breather you know let's have some interactions with some characters and tease out some cool things about them like the most we had was when she was in prison basically yeah exactly And, and her and Maven were like playing mind games but there wasn't like a lot of other stuff going on no and there were so many characters and I feel like I don't know them all that well because they were just props in this story to like get shit done and like yeah yeah and like you said it read there was so much politics there was so much military strategy there was so much um like okay how are we gonna take down this fortress okay here's the plan here's the weapons here's and it was just it was too much I think for me I think I would have been fine if we, if I was just reading it through because it kept the pace going. I think for me, it honestly was harder because of the podcasting. And then it would be like, okay, I need to breathe. Like I stopped halfway through. Mm. Let me like reflect. And then I started feeling like overwhelmed by everything. <laughs> like it wasn't really when I was reading it that I felt that way, but it was more when I was like thinking about it a lot. Yes. <laughs> yes. Because like I did enjoy parts of it when I was reading it. I don't want to make it sound like I didn't enjoy the book, but... I don't know, in terms of all the other stories we've read, especially this year, we've had some really great characters. And in this book, I feel like I will not remember any of the characters because it was all about the plot and the action and what was happening. There wasn't enough like personal moments. That's fair. I kind of wish we had had more of the, and we've talked about this a little bit, but the different perspectives yeah. earlier in the book. Because I feel like we got to know Mare like she's the only character where we, we really know even though we got all these different perspectives in part because we got to see her when there was less going on yes yes I agree and especially in this 
in this last half of the book, we got we got a Maven chapter and we got a Cal chapter. So we did get some, yeah, we got some boys. We got some guys <laughs> mixed in there. So we did get like a variety of perspectives, but it was too late in the game. Like the last half of the last book is where we started learning more about Maven and Cal and and what their mentality was and it was too late. I think it was a little bit hard when we saw cuz when we first got different perspectives, they were like in different places. Like we were seeing Mare was in captivity and uh, Cameron was with the Scarlet Guard or Iris was with Maven and Mare was somewhere else and Evangeline was somewhere else. Mm -hmm. It it was really confusing for me when we had multiple perspectives and everyone was in the room to remember which perspective I was. Like, I'd be like, wait, why is Mare doing that? And I'd be like, oh no, that's Evangeline. Or like, you know, like it was kind of hard to keep it straight when you were talking about people in the same room. I agree. They, like, didn't have quite distinct enough voices or something. Or because it was so action-based, it, like, there were only a few points where it mattered who was talking, and it was confusing. Yeah. It didn't really matter who was talking at some points, which I don't think that's a good thing. Yeah. I don't know. And I also just thought the, um, like, I was trying to think about the writing style and the language that they use. And I think, for me... I think having a book that has a really good plot and really good characters is super important, but something that just takes it one step further is when there's beautiful writing. Yeah. Or even just good writing. And, and, and not that this writing was bad, but I thought the writing was just very mechanical and it was designed purely to get the plot across. Like it, the, the writing just simply moved the story forward. There wasn't anything special. There wasn't anything memorable. There wasn't even anything really funny. Like, mm-hmm. I think the writing was a little dry for me and there wasn't enough humor. There wasn't enough uh, yeah. moments that made me stop and think like, oh, wow, that was a beautiful way to say something. It was just, um, it was just like all about business, you know? Yeah, it was effective, but it wasn't memorable. I think it, it at least wasn't distractingly bad. Cause no, that, no, no. Like, I agree. Like, now that I'm thinking about it, I didn't really notice when I was reading um, and I definitely notice when it's really bad. But I also tend to notice, to your point, if something really hits me the way it's worded and I don't have any, mm-hmm. um, nothing's coming to mind for me there either. Yeah, like it wasn't confusing or anything. And it's hard to write battle scenes. It's hard to like make things come across clearly. And I think Victoria Aviard did a good job of that. I just wish there had been a little bit more. Well, and this is like her first, at least, published series. Mm-hmm. And as much as I love characters and good writing... I think this is one of the best plots we've... Like, I think she did a good job of addressing a lot of things. There's some character questions I have, but not a lot of plot questions I have. And for how long the book was and how involved and how many different pieces were at play, I actually am, like, pretty impressed with that side of it. But I'm hopeful that she can build off of that. Well, she used to be a screenwriter, right? That's what else she does. And I think that's kind of interesting, too, because I think movies tend to be a little bit more plot-driven in a lot of ways. You know, like, I mean, Mm -hmm. because you're watching things happen. I think that helped her be a good plot writer. I think the plot was better than a lot of the plots we've read. Yes, I would would also agree with that. I thought that the way it wrapped up, part of me was like, I'm glad it stopped where it did because I don't want to read anymore. Yeah. But another part of me was thinking like, well, I'm kind of curious about what happens with Iris and the Lakelands. Like, they just kind of ran away at the end and even Mare brings that up and they're like well you don't have to worry about that right now and I was just like ugh, that's kind of a 
I don't know. That's kind of like an unsatisfying ending. But at the same time, I didn't want to read anything more about the Lakelanders. I just wish that I wish that that one little plot line got tied up a little bit better. Like, That's fair. Like you assume that it's going to work out and, you know, they'll be successful. But for a 700 page book, for it to end with not all the countries accounted for was a little disappointing to me. Yeah, although I think the whole point of, like, this started focused on Norda. And, mm-hmm. and like, that's sort of where Mare and Cal and the main characters were based. I feel like we got the conclusion there, but I like that it wasn't, like, and magically everything worked out everywhere. Like, there's yeah. still a lot to happen. But I also don't necessarily feel like Mare has to be the one to do it. Like, I feel like if it was yeah. from Farley's perspective or something, it would be really unsatisfying. Or Iris's, like, if those were the two main perspectives, but... I sort of felt okay because of how we started the story and whose perspective we cared about most. That's a fair point. But I agree. I It wasn't like completely concluded, but I was also kind of relieved that Mare was taking a break. <laughs> yes, yes. And I was a little bit relieved that we didn't have to go through the slog of like, what all the countries are going to do now and how peace is actually achieved and how the election processes work. It's like, that is stuff that we don't really need to know about. I was mainly just curious about Iris. Yeah. I think it would be interesting if we had seen, like, even, like, a generation later, just, like, an epilogue or something that sort of said how it wrapped up or, you know, how long it took or something like that. That would have been great. Because the epilogue we did get, I didn't really like all that much. No, I didn't really either. I, I did like that, um, and I thought this was kind of honest and it made a lot of sense. I did like that Mary and Cal did not end up together at the end of this book. It's yep. more just like, okay, we need to take some time to figure out who we are separately. And then you're left with the feeling that she will go back one day and try to reconcile with him. But there was just too much that happened between them for it to be plausible that they would all of a sudden overlook everything that happened and just be blissfully in love. So I liked that, yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. And even them talking about how Cal had trouble, even though he knew that Maven had to die and was ready for Maven to die and basically asked Mare to be the one to do it, he still, she still was the one who killed his brother. Sure. Even though she almost died in the process. Like, I don't know, I like that it was not just like a, he still struggles with his feelings for his brother, even after everything that happened. And Mm -hmm. I think that was very honest, too. So do you want me to tell you the thing that was spoiled for me? Yes, I do. So (laughs) at the very beginning when we started this series, so Red Queen Part 1. It was literally the first, yeah. (laughs) I was doing research on Victoria Aveyard, and I came across a frequently asked questions page. And... The very first question that I saw was, why did you decide to kill Maven? (laughs) So from the first part of the first book in this series, I knew that Maven was going to die. And and I don't know, maybe that's what kind of like tainted my feeling about it was that I spoiled something so crucial. Although like, did you suspect Maven was going to die? I mean, there were lots of times where I felt like Ma- I felt like Maven would have to die at some point unless they magically found this, uh, you know, ardent person who could fix his brain and he could redeem mm-hmm. himself somewhere. But that became less and less likely and would feel more and more like a cop out. So I kind of thought he was going to die eventually. And I actually there were times earlier in the series where I thought he was going to die. But I can't imagine mm-hmm. knowing from the first like it does kind of <laughs> did, did you just know he was going to die or did you know yep. who was going to kill him? Or anything. No, I just knew that he was going to die. Yeah. So 
I mean, that was, I wish I hadn't done that to myself. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's hard. (laughs) It's hard even when you, I mean, that's hard with some of this other stuff too. Even when we think we know what's going to happen or we know what has to happen or whatever, it's like waiting for it to happen can be tedious. Tedious. Yeah, that's a good word for it. But there were a lot of parts in this second half that I did like. Um, I loved the Battle of Harbor Bay. Yeah. That was awesome. When, when Iris breaks the seawall with the wave and the nymphs are attacking. I liked that part quite a bit. I did too, except I wanted to see, because we saw Iris was basically forced to go to Harbor Bay to bring her mom there mm-hmm. when Maven put her in that position. And then all of a sudden we were like in the battle. Yeah. And I was, I kind of wanted to see her perspective more about how did she feel. I don't know. We didn't really see her... Like, we saw that she did it, but we didn't really see how she felt. We saw her after the battle, and we saw her being forced into the battle. But we did, I don't know. I was kind of... Um, you wanted her perspective during the wanted battle. Wanted to see her perspective a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't blame you. Um, I liked when... I mean, Cal had a couple really bad moments with water, <laughs> where he almost oh, drowns, yeah. like, a bunch <laughs> of times. Uh, yeah. What did you think about Julian and um, Annabelle's deal with the Lakelanders and keeping Cal out of the loop? Wow. That was, actually, this is like horrible to say, but that was, aside from Harbor Bay, that was actually probably one of my other favorite scenes whenever Julian and Annabelle reveal that they've been plotting behind Cal's back and they bring iris and her mother salen iral who Mm -hmm. i've been calling stalin the entire time (laughs) i just realized that it's salen iral not stalin so sorry about that everyone um but that was so creepy when they just they bring them the man that killed their father and they just like slowly drown him yeah oh it was so horrible but it was just like you knew something they were gonna do something really horrible to him and Cal was just shocked because he had no idea that they had planned to end the war that way. And it just ended the war pretty much. Yeah, well, because they also betrayed Maven in the process. And part of me yep. felt like that, like I'm glad that that happened and it was a good deal and all this other stuff. And the other part of me was like, it almost felt too easy after everything we've been through to just be <laughs> like, okay, well, here's Maven. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I was kind of glad that that wasn't the end of it. Like, I think if he had been executed at that point, I would have been a little bit disappointed, but I kind of liked that then the Scarlet Guard kidnapped him, and then they, yeah. he kind of negotiated um, to be brought back to, like, guide them through the tunnels, and then he escaped, and, you know, like... He it, fought the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> He's a little sneaky, evil person. If anyone's a rat, they kept calling the Reds rats. I was like, Maven is Maven the most the rat. rat-like person that I can... <laughs> picture in this book when he's underground and all the tunnels like yeah. and then the train goes by and he's like oh that was my escape train what did you think about evangeline knowing or suspecting that her dad was part of the deal and not telling him well that kind of surprised me because i know they had been building up a lot to the fact that evangeline felt very used by her family mm-hmm. um so i think that helped lessen the shock of her basically being okay with her dad being killed mm-hmm. Um, but because at the beginning you get the idea that she's very loyal to her family and she will do anything for them. Like that that's the only thing she cares about, it seems like, at the beginning. Right. Yeah. But then I think the author did a good job of planting that kind of seed of discord in, um, in Evangeline and making her slowly become very upset with her family to the point where 
she doesn't want anything to do with them ever again. Mm-hmm. And the scene that really sealed it for me was when she tries to run and her mother sends wolves after her. Yeah. And and then her brother saves and her. And her dad's literally pulling the armor off, off of her. Yeah. yeah, that they... And I think that was... I think if they had behaved differently there, she might have said something. Mm-hmm. I think she was trying to give them a final chance also. Yeah. And it made it easier to walk away. But yeah, her family... The loyalty didn't seem to go both ways, and we saw more and more of that as we got her perspective and saw how her dad, and even her mom, her mom just didn't really seem like a very motherly um, person oh, by no. any means. So, And also you saw her mother, and, the, and I think the same with Iris's mother. Both of them, I think their greatest weakness was that they thought that fundamentally Reds were inferior to them. Yeah. And they didn't ever think it, it was even possible that Reds would be able to win. Like they, Annabelle they couldn't too, I think. even, yeah. yeah, and Annabelle, they couldn't even fathom the idea that this quote unquote weaker race could rise up against them. And that was their greatest weakness. That's what led to their downfall. They couldn't believe that Reds would, would win against them. Yeah, it was definitely, it was a flaw of the whole silver. That's like what even gave the opportunity for the Reds to rise was that they weren't even taken seriously enough to like fight back until they became, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. That was how they were able to rise, basically, yeah. Yeah, and I think that's, yeah. And, and I think that Evangeline was smart enough to realize how wrong that was. And I think that made it easier for her to be like, I don't care what happens to you. You've been using me my whole life. I'm going to run off with Elaine. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> and I mean, it is rough because it's her family. Like, her dad, she basically seals his fate. But but he also sealed his own fate to start with. So I think, and I think um, it's also interesting. She just decided... Not to interfere. Right. So it wasn't, I mean, it would have been like a whole nother level of betrayal if she had somehow Arranged played a it. role in bringing <laughs> yeah. it about. But um, but I was kind of surprised because her dad seems so smart. I'm kind of surprised he didn't reach the conclusion that she reached. Because it's not like she got an extra clue. She was just like, there's no way this was the whole deal. That's actually very true. She was saying like, there's no way they would be satisfied with just Salen. Like there yeah. has to be another piece to this puzzle. And I feel like her dad is so um, politically aware, like just, I, I'm surprised that he didn't draw the same conclusion or mm-hmm. was suspecting, like was fighting back at all. Yeah. Um, he should have been more aware of that. I think. But maybe also it's like, I don't know, denial, like, like her mom with the reds. He just didn't think he thought he was safe, I guess. I don't know. Well, and he wasn't there when the actual prisoner exchange happened. So maybe he didn't like see and understand as much because maybe he knew Cal would never turn on him and he didn't realize that there was like Annabelle and Julian or maybe he you know because Cal's just more of a stand-up guy than that but uh yeah or maybe he he just had the same silver weakness where he just assumed he was sort of untouchable I agree and and I think like that is the biggest piece of why Evangeline rebelled because in a way she is similar to Red's because she's constantly denied what she wants because of what she is you know, she yeah. she wants to be with Elaine. She doesn't want to be married to Cal. And her parents are completely refusing because of who she, of how she was born and who she is. And I think she finally was able to relate a little bit to the Reds, even though, granted, she had a much different life than the Reds. Yeah. But I think that piece kind of made her... Um, well, and, and Davidson, he started to plant that idea that you're not so different. You know, like here, right. everyone's equal. Anyone can be who they are. The way you're born doesn't matter. Like he started planting these ideas that helped her draw that uh, make comparison. Sympathy. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It made her have sympathy for the Reds. 
And it's interesting because I also, I still don't think, I still, this is what I actually like about her. I don't think she really cared about the Reds. I think she just stopped caring about being better than them. But her real motivation was still kind of selfish. Like she wanted to go and like live with her love. And selfish in a better way in some ways. But like, you know, it wasn't like she suddenly was like, oh, she didn't stick around to fight because she thought it was right. She didn't like, she still, she just basically decided this isn't my fight. I'm going to take care of myself and make myself happy. Mm -hmm. And I can go somewhere where I can be me and be with the woman I love and whatever. Right. And if the cost was Reds becoming equals, she was totally fine with that. Yep. Yeah. But that is a good point to to bear in mind. Like, we do like Evangeline a lot, but she wasn't interested in equality for Reds. She was interested in being with Elaine. (laughs) But I think she could get there. I think she understood the idea of equality and she stopped being like the same level of silver that just thought she was better than them. She just didn't care enough to like go fight for their cause, which to be fair, I mean... That's, that's she just wants like to live her life. When you're 18 years old or whatever. She really yeah. just wants to live her life. <laughs> yeah. What did you think about John's revelation that he he basically hinted that he killed Kaylorn's master to start to snowball the whole thing and be the spark that started the rebellion? I would have had <laughs> way more of like an identity crisis that than Meredith. I'm kind of glad John wasn't more of a character because it reminds me of that other series we read, Carve the Mark. Um, where it starts to like almost get like if you if your fate's already decided or if you don't really have a choice in it or if someone else is manipulating oh, you know, yeah. pulling the strings like I started like <laughs> going down that kind of rabbit hole of it just like <laughs> your identity and your sense of self and everything gets like really kind of messed up so I am actually surprised she had a couple of those thoughts but I would have felt way more manipulated I think oh, me too. than she even seemed to um and I don't know. So what do you think about, because John still said that she would rise alone, right? I sort of feel like his proclamation didn't fully come to be, or I'm curious. Like, yes, yeah, she didn't, she broke away from Cal and did her own thing, but she never really, I don't know. I think that's what he meant, because Cal only came around at the very last minute when Julian was basically talking to him and he was like, I don't know why you're hanging on to this crown because it won't bring your mother and father back and you won't win. You won't win this war. So why are you holding on to this crown? And it was only at the last minute that he turned around and, and, you know, started believing in Mare's cause. So I think it is kind of true that she rose up alone. I mean, she obviously she had help, but. Well, she did it all by herself, but she didn't also, like, it wasn't like she ever rose up kind of. Like, I sort of feel like as much as she was the perspective and she was, like, kind of a figurehead for some stuff, at the end of the day, she kind of wasn't anyone special in this battle, mm. um, except that she, like, knew all the key yeah. players. But I guess she killed Maven, but I sort of feel like we cared about her because that was the perspective and she, like, was the catalyst for a lot of things. But sort of at the end of the day, she wasn't really any, she didn't really rise to any special place necessarily. I don't know. Yeah. I guess the idea of what is, what did he mean by rise up alone? And I don't even know, why did he come back? Just to make sure that they went? I don't know. I didn't really understand, John. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I kind of wish that somehow, I almost, that was probably my least favorite part of the story. Just because, I feel like that stuff gets so complicated when you start thinking about how mm-hmm. much someone's been manipulated and what their choices really are and da 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 da, da. Prophecies complicate um, everything. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not big on the whole fate thing, I think. I think it makes me uncomfortable. I don't blame you. But at least it was a relatively small part, not like the whole thing. Yeah, that's true. And 
I sort of back to your character thing. I well, I feel like the plot wrapped up well, and there wasn't anyone that we like completely didn't know what happened to them. I sort of felt like I wanted to hear more about what Julian discovered with his research, or I was just gonna say that I want more of Julian. Yeah, what it means to be red versus super red versus silver, and if there's gonna be more differences, or if I don't know. Oh, and also like if Julian is gonna be okay because he essentially kills. Volo yeah. Samos. He kills Evangeline's dad. He sings him off a bridge. Yeah. And he and I was just like, oh, it's basically what his worst enemy did. He he then copied. Yep. And it's just like, oh, I, I mean, sure. I I know he did it for reasons he thought were right, but like the way his sister died was basically the way he ended up killing someone. No, I agree. That's I can't feel good. Yeah. And to just take away someone's choice like that, and yeah. Yeah, I'm very curious to see what becomes of him. And I also, I mean, I was even kind of sad because we knew that he liked, um, what's her name? Sarah? No. What's her name? The healer? (laughs) It is Sarah? I don't don't even trust myself when I get a name right. Um, (laughs) But, I mean, and we saw that they were together and that she can now speak and stuff, but I sort of feel like there were some things that, like, could have been a lot bigger or a lot more. Like, I sort of wanted to see how she felt about everything that happened or you know how they made peace or didn't make peace or yeah she wasn't a very notable character yeah and I kind of wanted to see more about Evangeline's brother and how you know did he accept Evangeline's like he sided with his sister when he saw the parents attacking her but that's not the same as like he hasn't been on this whole journey with her how does he feel about who she is and what choices she's making and and even just Farley never got her revenge on him or even really had a moment where she decided not to get her revenge on him Um, yeah I wish we had had that a scene where Farley like could have killed Ptolemus or Tully Mm -hmm. um and then somehow I don't know didn't that could have been a cool moment for her or if he had like done something to help her or save Clara or I don't some like just something to like redeem himself somehow in Um, her eyes yeah and Mare's family, I sort of wanted more from her dad at some point, too. I don't know why. I thought he was going to, like, do more at some point. Mm. Or, I don't know. In some ways, I'm glad that her family just, like, stayed home and that they all loved her and were happy every time she was back and, like, defensive of her when Cal broke up with her and stuff. But the other part of me was kind of like, they've been in the background this whole time and I wanted them to do something or, I don't know. Yeah. It just seems weird to have characters like that who who are so throwaway. Yeah. Like, just make her an orphan. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And especially because she had all these, like, so many siblings. I, like, don't even feel like Brie and Tammy or whatever. Right. Like, I was like... Well, I guess none of them had powers, so they couldn't really do much. But even... But Farley didn't. Yeah, Farley didn't. Killorn didn't. Yeah. And even uh, her sister had a role, even though it kind of died down later. I feel like she didn't need so many siblings. It could have all been like Shade and her sister or something. Yeah, <laughs> could have been enough. Well, did you do any research this week? I did. So, you know how at the very, very, very end, <laughs> they were talking about bison? <laughs> yes. Did you research bison? I researched endangered or extinct animals that came back from extinction (laughs) can i guess some of them it's obviously related well can i tell you how this started 
Yes, please. I was reading, do you remember, it was earlier this year, maybe it was last year, um, there was that killer whale who carried around her dead baby for like 17 days. Yeah. Um, So so sad. Yeah, there was like an orca whale who was the first one to give birth in this pod since 2015. So it had been like three years since they had had any babies in this pod, and the baby only lasted for a half hour, and she carried it around for 17 days, like, grieving. But I just read this um, other article that said they think that um, J50, who's also part of the same pod, she's a three-year-old female, one of the more recent births that was successful because they haven't had any successful births in a long time, um, Mm -hmm. has gone missing, and they think she might be dead. Oh, no. And she's, like, been starving for a long time because the food supply is really bad. And they just had three different orca pods came together and formed a super pod. But they think it might be, like, the family's grieving and they're, like, coming to support each other because they're very social um, animals. And they're still kind of hopeful. They haven't, like, they suspect she's dead, but they haven't officially ruled that she's dead. Um, But they haven't seen her since... September 7th was the last known sighting. Oh, no. Um, so are orca whales going extinct? So they're not extinct everywhere, but there are certain places where they're in date. This is, I was actually having trouble figuring this out because I guess, like, basically the U.S. considers them endangered and this particular mm. pod is having issues and I think several other pods, but I don't think they're officially... So I looked it up, and there it says not enough data or something. So they no. <laughs> they like don't know enough about whales to know what their numbers look like or what their food source oh, yeah. looks like or how many there really are. And so they're not officially classified as endangered or extinct. Okay. But uh, the U.S. National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration is concerned. Um, that's So I read that, and I was thinking about this whole bison thing, and I was like, I need some happy stories about animals that come back or – you know, that actually weren't extinct or whatever. Yeah. So um, I looked up, like, really random ones. So if you know any real ones, they're probably not ones I know much about. But you can guess. Run a guess. Okay. Um, bald eagle. I actually don't have a story about that one, but possibly. Are they not endangered? I don't think so, because I know for a while, like, their eggshells were really thin and a lot of chicks were dying and they were endangered. But I think they're brought back now. I think they're all right now. Doing just fine. I think they are all right now. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Um, uh, 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 pandas. It's also not on my list. Obviously, there's probably a ton more than what is on my list. <laughs> the one that I heard a lot about that was on the list that I thought you were going to guess is the gray wolves. So, oh. like back in 1960, there were only 300 wolves and they were like only in Wisconsin and Minnesota, like deep in the woods. And, um, <laughs> Deep in the dark, dark woods. <laughs> yeah. But in 2013, <laughs> we had over 5,000 wolves in the lower 48 states. And they think that there, there were originally more than 2 million that were in the U.S. before humans started, like... I mean, we've, we've talked about it in other things. Humans, like, basically decided that wolves were, like, especially bad and went and found them extremely threatening and basically waged war on we wolves. We hunted them to, like, yeah. extinction. Yeah. yeah. So they were on the brink of extinction. And then they were put on the endangered species or protected under the Endangered Species Act in 1974. And in the 40 years since then, they've basically come back really, really well and have grown substantially. And they've been mm. reintroduced in habitats like um, in 95, they went back to Yellowstone. So in 2011 oh, and 2012, they were delisted due to recovery as an endangered species or whatever. So they came off of that list. 
but it's kind of still controversial because they are only in 15% of their old range still. So there's still like a lot of... Oh, wow. Like, should they still be protected or not? It's still kind of a big question. Well, I mean, there was this whole thing that I watched. I forget where it was, but they were talking about like there was one area that was just completely decimated by the deer population because they had eaten the vegetation to the point where basically it was a wasteland. Mm -hmm. And so they introduced a pack of wolves into the area and the wolves brought down the deer population. And there's like this whole video about what happened once the deer population decreased. It was like the vegetation grew. And because of that, more small animals moved into the area. Like the water system somehow completely revitalized. There were more habitats for insects and birds. And it it was amazing to watch this, this area turn from like a literal wasteland into this flourishing habitat. Well, it's true. It's like natural population control. All of our, Mm -hmm. pretty much every food chain that we have. Same with, um, in the water. You know, if you like hunt too many sharks or whatever, then, other fish lower down on the food chain get out of control and then they eat too much I mean like it's everything's like so tied and nature really is like this sort of delicate balance and especially humans are like the worst at interfering whether it's directly hunting or like pollution and other things that we do but um yeah it's kind of crazy but we can also help as the bison in this story were described and as some of these other animals were so in Louisiana between 1968 and 1980, there were 1,276 brown pelicans reintroduced into Louisiana. So I'm not actually sure how many there were before that. But basically, the pelicans had almost disappeared when we started using DDT. It led to thinner eggshells. So this is kind of like what you were talking about with the Mm -mm. eagles. So the pelican mothers who stand on top of them to keep them warm were crushing the eggs and like babies weren't being born and um, all of this stuff. So they were granted protection by the Endangered Species Act and there were a bunch of rehabilitation efforts and there was more pesticide regulation and the population resurged and was delisted in 1985. Mm. And now there are nearly 11,000 nesting pairs producing over 24,000 fledglings in Louisiana as of this number's from 2007. Why can't it ever be like the animals that we'd want to go extinct that go extinct, like bed bugs? (laughs) Yeah, seriously. I mean, come on. It always has to be something like beautiful and like an orca whale that's going extinct where it's like, can't we just get rid of all the bed bugs or mosquitoes? How (laughs) How do we, how do we make them go? (laughs) Well, that's all the more reason to keep the things higher up on the food chain to keep them in check. Yeah. In check. Yeah. Um, The Canadian goose, I'm not a big fan of geese. I hate geese. But oh, we, they're so mean. We help bring them back, unfortunately. Oh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. But uh, in 1975, there were only 790. This might be a particular type of Canadian goose, the Aleutian Canadian goose. But that, Ooh. looking at a picture, that's the one I think yeah, of. The one you think of, yeah. Um, but in 2011, there were around 111,000. So they were nearly wiped out just by, they said, non-native foxes or. Ooh. How does this even make sense? Basically, I think... Where the foxes come from? <laughs> they were introducing foxes into the region because they wanted to hunt them for fur. Or, oh, you know, like, yeah. Get more foxes for fur. And those foxes were eating the birds' eggs and the baby goose oh, no. And then the geese were declining. Oh, so, that's bad. Yeah. 
So they basically removed the invasive foxes from the nesting grounds and restricted hunting of the geese and did other like habitat protection measures. And they came back after three decades. Okay. So it's just, it is kind of nice to know like we can reverse some of our efforts, but it's also like you actually have to do a lot of stuff to make that happen. So I think that's why we save all the cute ones or whatever. (laughs) But, uh, But I also read this article. This is about... It's the title is called "Glad to Have You Back: Seven Species That Were Declared Extinct But Actually Survived." Whoa! So they were declared gone essentially from the face of the earth. Yeah, they thought there were no more left, and then someone would find one. Whoa! So, um, okay, tell me what these are. One of these <laughs> is the New Guinea big-eared bat, which is actually really cute looking. <laughs> mm, I think, but ba- I like bats. I think bats are cute. They get a bad rap, but yeah. So fruit bats. Have you ever seen a fruit bat? They're like flying small dogs. Well, and I read, I read some Silverwing. Did you ever read the Silverwing series when you were younger? No. Oh, those are some of my favorite like children's books that were told about the perspective of a bat. But um, <laughs> so a couple years ago, scientists were in Papua New Guinea and they spotted like a small little bat that looked kind of strange and it didn't match any of the other micro bats that they knew lived in the area but um in may 2014 a bat expert confirmed that it was a type of bat that had last been seen in 1890 wow so it had been over 120 years so that means that even though it was considered likely extinct it actually is not likely extinct so there were more than one for sure yep could you imagine how sad it would be to be the last of your kind to be so like sad. the last bat left. This one was kind of interesting too. So there's there's this night snake called the Clarion night snake, and it's so rare that biologists had erased it from the scientific record. Apparently, wow, that seems that seems very definitive. <laughs> I know. So I don't know. I don't really know what that means. Like if that means they're like, oh, these reports must have been false. It never exists. Like I don't really know what is entailed with that. But that's what this article says. Um, and then they rediscovered it, and. They traveled to this really remote island off of the coast of Mexico, along with a military escort, it says, to search for this night snake, and they eventually found them. So now they're, they're back. <laughs> I, love the, I love the name Night Snake. That I know. sounds so funny. <laughs> and yeah, it said it hid on this remote island for over 80 years, but um, they blend in really, really well. So I guess it would be hard to find. Okay, and then, this is interesting. So there's these, um, the Lord Howe stick insects. Ugh. They grow so big that they used to be called tree lobsters. Oh, God. Um, Don't send me a picture of that. Okay. It's kind of gross looking, but it's actually kind of cool. Um, but so I guess there were really hungry rats that that we brought to the home island where these insects lived back in the 1900s. And basically, we thought they were extinct for 50 years. Um, but we found one bush that had a handful of survivors clinging to life on oh. like this random outcropping out and see off this island that the rats I guess couldn't get to so there's just like one bush where these one floating bush so where all the last yeah that it kind of is <laughs> oh man and they had to watch all of their friends and family get eaten by rats yeah that's dramatic but they're giant lobster bugs wow yeah well, so I, there's a bunch of different animals that there's a lot of stories like this, and a lot of them are kind of the same type of story. Usually humans did something to introduce them into their environment that either hurt their food supply, or we directly hunted them, or we disrupted something else, and they didn't have a place to hide, or something like We're that. always to blame. I mean, in a lot of these stories, we are, whether it's yeah. directly or indirectly. Something we did to some other animal that then affected the food chain. Again, all this stuff is so interconnected. Um, That's pretty fascinating. Yeah, but then... 
we can undo it too. And it was kind of uplifting. So that was my uh, story. So reds can rise again. Bison <laughs> will come back. And the circle of life. We have one bush full of stick insects left. So <laughs> there you go. That's the lesson to take away. <laughs> What about you? I definitely it's struggled with really what to good. research. No, it actually like fits really well and with the theme of like reds rising and exactly. Well, because she used this analogy, and it was just because I read this whale article the same week. Because she, I mean, that was really uh, Giza's point with the bison, right? It was yeah, humans basically hunted them, and now look how they're doing. They're doing great. They came back because we helped them also, and we can change course, and we can change our history, and we can't undo the bad we do. Um, so yeah, we should end with that. <laughs> Does that mean no good research from <laughs> uh, Well, okay, I was I really liked the Battle of Harbor Bay, so I was trying to research naval battles. And then I stopped doing that. And then I started researching um like military tactics that matched the silver abilities. So I was looking at fire and water and Evangeline's mother, how she controls animals. And so I was just looking at like different military tactics that Silver's could have used that kind of like reminded me of Silver superpowers. Uh-huh. Um, so for fire, I found this one thing called a fire ship. Have you heard of this? I have not. So fire ships were used in the days of wooden sailing ships. And what they would do would, was they would fill, they would take a ship and they would fill it with combustibles and they would deliberately set it on fire and then steer it towards the enemy sh- enemy fleet. Ooh. And so it was kind of a cool tactic because it was used to just generate panic and make the enemy break formation. And How expensive is that? You build well, a ship just to light it on fire? They were either um, ships that where they didn't have any ammunition left, like all of their arsenal was spent. Or ones that were really old and worn out, or sometimes they were just really inexpensive vessels that they built um, that were designed to be set on fire. And so, like some fleets, like when people went into battle, sometimes their fleet would include a fire ship whose only purpose was to be set on fire and steered towards the enemy fleet, which I thought was Crazy. really cool. So they were used yeah. in in 332 BC. Alexander the Great um, used fire ships in his attack against the Phoenicians. Okay. And then I guess they became a permanent addition to fleets in 1588. I feel like that'd be really good at first, but then once people know that's what you're doing. Yeah, but but they can't really do anything because like how fast can you move your fleet? Like an yeah, entire fleet against yeah. one ship that's sailing towards you on fire. And also like... Yeah, that's true. It's basically like a floating bomb, right? Yeah, like, essentially. Know. And like all, ships of that age were made from wood and they were really flammable because they were they they were made from wood they had seams caulked with tar ropes greased with fat and stores of gunpowder in them so basically like <laughs> they're ready to blow they're ready to blow <laughs> so it was like a really great military tactic that's awesome when you were talking about the animal thing it reminds me of i forget what book we were doing but when you were talking about how they used to send cats into egypt or whatever oh yeah the cat army <laughs> Yeah. And no one would shoot them because cats were sacred. So, like, the yeah. enemy invaded. <laughs> well, I was looking at that, too. So, um, I, is it Iris? No, it's Evangeline's mother who controls animals. So, Evangeline's yeah. mother would have really liked this method that was developed in the 10th century by Olga of Kiev. So, um, during this military strategy, they tied burning tinder to birds and then set the birds free 
And when the birds flew back to their nests in the enemy town, they would drop tinder on the town and set the town on fire. Wow. Yeah. So, but how would they, so they'd have to like go into town and capture the birds from that town? First? <laughs> yes, I guess so. <laughs> It's quite involved. Well, it's also like you have to really know where those birds are going. Yeah, that's what I and mean. hope they're yeah. going to the right place. But it's kind of it's kind of interesting. It is um, interesting. And then, okay, during in 1215, during the siege of the Rochester Castle, King John ordered that fat from 40 pigs be used to set fire to the mines beneath the Great Keep, which caused it to collapse, which was pretty interesting. So animal fat was used often as an accelerant for fire. And they would sometimes drop it on people from above when they were like defending a castle from siege from a siege. Wow. Yeah. Um, okay, this was interesting. So in fourteen in the fourth century BC, sometimes de- people who were trying to defend a castle or a keep, they would <laughs> I don't know how they would do this, but somehow they would gather a ton of wasps and bees and scorpions, and they would just drop them on the enemy so that. The enemy would be stung by wasps and bees and scorpions. If you ever go to war with James, that would be a very effective method. Oh, really? <laughs> he hates all those things. Well, everyone's afraid of scorpions. I mean, who isn't afraid we of scorpions? We had four scorpions in our bathtub this morning. Oh! <laughs> the, the little ones? They're, they weren't too bad, too big, but they're definitely oh, around. awful. <laughs> um, okay, and the last tactic that I thought was interesting that used animals was in... 189 BC, um, there was a town that was besieged by Romans, and the defenders filled a clay jar with chicken feathers, which they then lit, and then they used bellows to blow the smoke down the tunnel where the Romans were coming. And I guess if you set chicken feathers on fire, it creates like this really terrible smell or this awful smoke, and they um, were able to ward off the Romans by using chicken feather smoke. (laughs) I've never lit chicken feathers on fire, so now I know. <laughs> Don't think I ever will. <laughs> Should I ever? At least not without proper ventilation. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. That is funny. Yeah. That's cool. Use what you have. Yeah. So that was my research. Um, it, was a, it was a tough research week. It was. I actually was kind of disappointed we didn't see more of Evangeline's mom's animal use, because there were some cool animals that would just, like, hang around, but really the only time we saw mm-hmm. her attack with them was against her own daughter. Oh, yeah, I know. And then otherwise, we saw her using them as spies, which was kind of cool, but again, against mm-hmm. her own children a lot, and yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so did we think of a fan name for this series? No. No, I didn't either. Oh, no. I, I really, I was trying to be like something about all the different colors, like blood blind or something. Where the blood blind? <laughs> I don't know. It, that was blind. the best I came up with, and that sounds so creepy. <laughs> um, what's, the universal, what's the universal blood type? Is it O? Oh, it's O something. Well, O's the universal donor. The universal receiver is AB. I don't remember if it's positive or negative. One of them's... O negative. I don't like that name. as a fan name, though. <laughs> I also... I mean, like, we could just be, like, the Scarlet Guard or something. Oh, actually, okay. Let's be the Scarlet Guard. Because I feel like... That's fine. <laughs> even though they're not all perfect. And that's the other thing. I still wanted to see more about the bigger Scarlet Guard, like, the way they were all organized and stuff. We, like, met a few other generals, but... I don't know. I still feel like they're this huge organization that we only saw a piece of. But anyways, we can be a part of the Scarlet Card. I think it's a cool okay. name. And they, did, they didn't do anything too, too terrible that I don't want to be associated with them. 
Good point. <laughs> oh, good. I'm glad that's off our shoulders. <laughs> How many? Um, oh, a rating. We yeah. need to rate the series. But, Ooh, out of crowns? Okay, yeah. How many crowns would you give this? How many red crowns would you give this? <laughs> out of ten? Yeah. I'm giving it four. Four? Mm. I'm giving it four. I think I'm giving it six. Wow. I was going to do seven, but since you gave it four, I went down one. <laughs> I... I struggled with this series and and not about anything in particular like I think the author did a great job with the plot and like she built a really great world I just it wasn't my book yeah that's fair I think it wasn't as unique as some of the books we've read in part because we've been reading so many stories like I don't think it's not that it's not unique um and I do think there were unique things about it but so many things reminded me of other books we've read I just sort of feel like I might have felt differently if I had read it before some of those other ones by itself yeah I think me too I think I would have liked it more if I hadn't read the books we read this year honestly there were just so many good ones yeah do we want to talk about the next book we're reading yes let's do it so we're going back to an old favorite author yes our favorite our favorite author Marie Lu we are reading her series Warcross and Wildcard it's a duology and Wildcard is coming out in two days, September 18th. So it'll have just come out when we posted. And yeah, I'm really excited. It'll be fun to read a book that it just came out. Yep. And so Marie Lu wrote the Legend series, which we have not talked about on our podcast, but we're big fans of. We will one day. And The Young Elites. Yes. And honestly, we did talk about that one. And honestly, every time she comes out with a book, I feel like it's Christmas. Like, that's how much I love her stories. Because you know it's going to be amazing characters, amazing plot, really super cool world. They're always so different, Yeah, too, which I like. They're so different. And this one looks really, really exciting. So we are going to start Warcross next week. I hope you follow along with it. Um, is it your turn to read the back of the book? I don't know. Or is it mine? I think it might be yours, but I, I'm not sure. Okay. Um, I can do it right now. Okay, so this is a little bit about our next series, Warcross. For the millions who log in every day, Warcross isn't just a game, it's a way of life. The obsession started 10 years ago, and its fan base now spans the globe, some eager to escape from reality and others hoping to make a profit. Struggling to make ends meet, teenage hacker Emika Chen works as a bounty hunter, tracking down players who bet on the game illegally. But the bounty hunting world is a competitive one, and survival has not been easy. Needing to make some quick cash, Emika takes a risk and hacks into the opening game of the International Warcross Championships, only to accidentally glitch herself into the action and become an overnight sensation. Whoops. Can- <laughs> yeah. Didn't mean to do that. I hate it when I do that when I'm hacking. <laughs> it's the worst. <laughs> Convinced she's going to be arrested, Emika is shocked when instead she gets a call from the game's creator, the elusive young billionaire Hideo T- Tanaka, with an irresistible offer. He needs a spy on the inside of this year's tournament in order to uncover a security problem, and he wants Emika for the job. With no time to lose, Emika's whisked off to Tokyo and thrust into a world of fame and fortune that she's only dreamed of. But soon, her investigation uncovers a sinister plot with major consequences for the entire Warcross Empire. Ooh. Ooh. I'm so awesome. excited. Sounds very different from the other two series. I love the setting. Tokyo, we got video games, we got hacking. And I guess I don't know specifically, but it seems like we're more into the high tech than we are into like random magical powers, which I think I'm looking forward to. Right. Me too. I can't wait. So next week, we are going to read up to chapter 15. Perfect. Part one of Warcraft. And this will be a quick one, at least compared to a quadrology, because it's only the two books. Oh, 
And you know how much I love duologies. I know, they're so good. It's just the perfect, it's perfect. I hope I'm not like building Marie Lu up too high in my head. I hope. Impossible. I've heard good things though. I think it'll be good. Yeah, I do too. She doesn't ever disappoint, so. <laughs> um, is it your turn to tell me a joke? Um, I can because I just got a book at my shower last weekend. <laughs> 101 So Bad They're Good Dad Jokes from one of our fans. Who knows you very well. So I'm just going to open up to a random page and that's what we'll do. Sound good? This is going to be so helpful. Yes. Okay. Um, Dad, I want a sci-fi theme for my birthday. Okay, let's plan it. <laughs> That's good. Let's see. What did the janitor say when he popped out of the closet? Oh, I don't know. Supplies. <laughs> Supplies. <laughs> that one got me. <laughs> I feel like I've heard that one before, but maybe it's just from my dad. I really like that one. Oh, <laughs> uh, okay. Thank you for that. Alrighty. If you would like to, and we would love it if you would, reach out to us at mnktalkya at gmail.com, or you can find us on Instagram and Facebook at mnktalkya. And it's spelled out. And we'd love to hear dad jokes, book suggestions, anything you want. Send us send it our way and we will respond cool to you. Cool research you've done, if they found that whale, you know. If they found that whale. If you come across any stick insects clinging to a bush. <laughs> Let us know. We want to hear it all. And guess what I'm going to do this week? What? I'm going to get a new library card out. <gasps> oh, you just made me so excited. <laughs> oh my goodness. I actually go to the library here. I never really went in Atlanta, but... I might go here, so we'll see. I highly recommend it. (laughs) I should. All right. Anything else? That's it. Bye, bookworms. And do like Katie and go get a (laughs) library card. (laughs) Bye. M&K Talk YA is produced and edited by Marissa Snyder and Katie Bradford. Original music composition by Timothy Milkey. Logo design by Marissa Snyder. For updates and extras, visit mnktalkya.com or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. And if you haven't already, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. We would like to thank James Tobias, Chad Snyder, Meredith Kelfie, and Michael Howard for all of their support. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.